Hello, and thanks for joining me on episode 13 of Shelf Love, the podcast that uses romance novels as the text to discuss ourselves, our relationships, and the society that we live in. I'm your host, Andrea Martucci, and this week I'm joined by Steve Amidown, the Manuscripts and Research Archivist at Bowling Green State University's Brown Popular Culture Library. BGSU hosts the Romance Writers of America archives, plus a huge collection of romance writers' papers and other artifacts of romance novel history. In 2019, Steve was awarded RWA's Kathy Lynn's Librarian of the Year Award. Steve and I discuss Romance Landia's history and what's changing and what's always been a part of the conversation. You can take a guess which camp Alpha Males falls into. Steve introduces me to the concept of warm blanket reads and shares his own personal journey into reading romance. Steve chose this week's book worth reading, The Bromance Book Club by Lissa K. Adams. We discuss the dynamics of men's friendships, men reading romance and emotional idiots, and also what we give of ourselves in marriage and how this book breaks the fourth wall with the reader. At the end of the episode, I give more information about upcoming episodes, including the 2019 Superlatives episode, which I would love for you to be a part of. Stick around to hear how you can contribute to that episode. And so prior to starting at the BGSU Brown Pop Culture Library, were you part of Romancelandia? I was not. I have been a genre reader of various sorts throughout my life. So I started, you know, reading Alfred Hitchcock Free Investigators books when I was a kid. I'd always read sort of mystery and science fiction and all of those other things. But it never really dipped my toe into romance. And then when I came to interview for this job, I saw the scope of the romance collections and I was like, I need to start reading some of this. Thankfully, my wife is an avid reader of romance. And so she set me down with a list of recommendations and I dove in and I was like, this is a lot of fun and I really enjoy this. And then through my job, learning more about the history of the genre and some of the holes in the history of the genre in the common imagination, it became something I couldn't help but get more involved in. Mm. Because you sort of, as an archivist, you know, you, you kind of get absorbed in the history of the, the subject you're studying, and then you want to share it with people. That, that's my job, is to really share the stories and, and talk about what people don't know or what they, what they might sort of get wrong about, about romance and, and other topics as well, but romance specifically. And so what was the first book that you ended up reading? So the first book that I ended up reading was the first superhero book by Julie Kenner. It was Aphrodite's Kiss by Julie Kenner. I picked that one because we actually have some of Julie Kenner's papers in our collection. And so it was a kind of, I want to get to know this collection. And I enjoyed that. And then my wife got me hooked on Courtney Milan's Brothers Sinister series which was really the one that hooked me. That was when I went, oh, this is amazing. This is really well written. I can relate to the, the characters. There, there was a lot to it. And then I just dove in from there. And you were just talking about how being an archivist, it's about kind of helping people learn things that they didn't know before. What surprised you the most about romance that you wish more non-readers, maybe particularly men, knew? I think it's the breadth of the genre. The fact that you can dive into just about any sort of subgenre of book that you might read in another genre. So a science fiction uh, romance or a romantic suspense or erotic romance, all of these things that you would uh, maybe read in another area, you can then sort of 
find that within romance and you can find something that really appeals to you and you don't have to read it all that's not the not the point of it you can find find a a subset or an author or something that will speak to you within the genre without even really trying that hard which is fantastic <laughs> yes there's so much <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's like as soon as you read one thing you very rarely are wanting for the next thing to read because you, right. you can always dive into that author's work or right. um, you know you have a trope to go search for or you open your mouth on on twitter or facebook <laughs> and, and then you have six thousand other recommendations to add to your list yes i love asking for recommendations and mm -hmm. you know it's interesting because there's definitely certain authors that come up quite a bit and mm -hmm. And that's great. I mean, obviously, they get mentioned a lot because they're fantastic. But mm -hmm. also, yeah, you get all these other fantastic recommendations that are off the beaten path. And then, yeah, you have like potentially a new author that becomes your favorite author that you wouldn't maybe always find on a bookshelf in a library mm -hmm. or in a bookstore. So absolutely love recommendations from people on like romance Twitter and Instagram. And then, you know, just in my own office, right outside of my desk, I have about 16,000 category romances Wow! <laughs> just sitting there waiting for me to read them. So, you know, it gets a little intimidating, but you can kind of dive in wherever you want. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I have found myself in the past gravitating towards old favorites because of that overwhelm, you know, like uh -huh. it's like, okay, I, I just want something predictable. So. Right. I'm just going to go for something I've already read, which isn't great. I mean, there's always something new and interesting, but sometimes I think you get in those like a reading slump, you know? Oh, absolutely. There's a phenomenon that I've identified within myself. So it's not really a phenomenon, but the, the sort of what I call warm blanket reads. And it usually for me happens with authors entire kind of body of work where you open the book and you start reading and you go, ah, like you just settle right in. There's nothing jarring. You just feel like you're, you're just in there. Alyssa Cole is, is one who does that for me, definitely. I really like that. Warm Blanket Reads. Yeah. Which is your favorite Alyssa Cole? Ooh, that's really difficult. I really enjoyed the Loyal League series. I think that's that's definitely my favorite series of hers. That's the um, Civil War series, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah that's the Civil War, War series that she just finished. I will say the the first thing I read of hers, which was just, it blew my mind, was Let Us Dream, which is in the Daughters of a Nation anthology. And just the way she set the scene and the characters and the heat level and angstiness, it just sort of was like, yes, I get this. I understand I understand why this is so awesome. So speaking of the Loyal League, Kat Jackson and I will be reading An Unconditional Freedom. Oh, man. In December at some point. So I am I have not dug into that yet, but I have two books in the series on my bookshelf that I need to read. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to getting into that. An Unconditional Freedom just about wrecked. I'd, oh. I had to sit at the end of the book for a while. Just, just sit and kind of soak it all in and yeah see what i had just read it was amazing mm, okay great looking forward to it you know that graphic meme thing where it's like this is what people my friends think i do this is what my mom thinks i do this is what uh -huh. i think like what i wish i did or what i think i did and then this is what i actually do uh-huh 
what does what do you think that looks like for your job? <laughs> I think the uh, picture of what my friends think I do uh, is probably an anarchy symbol because people always confuse anarchist and archivist. <laughs> In terms of what, I'm not sure what my mom thinks I do. Uh, I'm not sure if she's going to hear this, so I don't know if I want to get into that too much. <laughs> you know, what I think I do is is probably uh, some heroic figure sharing a scroll on the mountaintop, and then what I actually do is piles of books and papers surrounding me at all times. <laughs> <laughs> just always more, I'm sure. Always. I just, I'm always pulling books off the shelf or pulling folders out of boxes or putting folders into boxes and there's a lot of paper people keep saying paper is dead and that is definitely not true i'm actually guessing here but i assume a lot of your job is basically creating metadata for the elements in your collection so that they can be discovered right so a lot of what i do when it comes to our manuscript collection uh, which in terms of of romance is uh, papers from about 45 different authors. And then we have probably another 150 to 200 collections of varying sizes. Some are, you know, a little tiny box and some are 15 or 20 boxes. But my job is to make those collections discoverable. So I take kind of a two, two-pronged approach. One is, like you said, creating metadata, creating finding aids that not only have a list of what's in it, but give kind of some keywords so that people who are searching for things might be able to sort of latch on to an idea and say, oh, this author wrote about this. You know, I can, I can look at that collection. And then the other part is the public facing part, which is then sharing those collections and talking about them in classes or at conferences or on Twitter or, you know, in, in interviews, uh, sharing what's in those collections and, and making them sort of more visible. So it's it's a literal version of access in the sense that I'm making them easier to find, but also creating more avenues to access by sharing them publicly. Yeah, and I think like the curation of it where you're definitely doing a fantastic job of making it accessible to people who are maybe not academics and mm-hmm. not ever going to be able to come physically to the library and search and get into the collections. But mm-hmm. I assume, have you been running the Twitter account? Yes. Yeah, I was uh, handed the keys to that on my first day and and given a very wide latitude, which I take. That's fantastic. I love you have the like little figurines that you take pictures with. Yes, Scully and Mulder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Would you call them figurines? <laughs> they are because they're not true action figures. Okay. They have very limited range of motion, and it looks like they're always dancing. Oh. Uh, which is why the hashtag for that is Friday Dancing, because <laughs> uh, it looks like they're kind of doing a little John Travolta uh, as as they stand. Yeah. And I love the pictures you take of the Romantic Times or the RWA mm-hmm. newsletters. I think those are really fascinating glimpses into the discussion at various points. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about romance. What do we want to call the the modern romance time period? Like the last 50 and 60 years? Is that reasonable? or So the, the most commonly accepted definition goes back to The Flame and the Flower, which is 1972, but romance stretches back 
way before that, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. Mills and Boone had been publishing since the early part of the 20th century. They converted to all romance, I think, in the 1930s. And then Harlequin came along and started in the mid-50s reprinting those Mills and Boone books for a North American audience. So that, you know, it's it's a little mushy, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, in, in terms of how we define kind of modern romance, it tends to start with that 1972 period. And then in 1980, you have the formation of the Romance Writers of America, mm-hmm. which is the first North American dedicated organization for romance writers. And, and everything kind of snowballed from there. You had kind of the romance wars of the early 80s, uh, where every single publisher on earth was publishing a romance novel, and it's only grown from there. Prior to 1972, it was mostly Harlequin mm-hmm. and Mills and Boone, and it was around that 72 mark that everybody else started to jump into. Right. And so what's something that you've noticed as you've combed through the collections and been curating things for... I think you do a great job of finding something topical mm-hmm. based on kind of the discussion that's happening in Romance Landia and finding something from the past. Mm-hmm. What's something that kind of shows the more things change, the more they stay the same? Right. I mean, that's really it. The fact that I can I can go back into whether it's RWA's records or Romantic Times or the Romance Writers Report, I can find an early example of the exact same argument that's going on now. You know, as an example, the, the alpha male discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, I was able to go back into the, the 80s and find articles in Romance Writers Report about the alpha male, you know, and then the beta male. So like, discussions like that have just, they're just cyclical. They just keep going back around. Every generation of readers and writers kind of has their own version of that. And it's true of just about every. Yeah. And then the other side of the more things change, the more they stay the same. I've been thinking a lot about the evolution of the romance genre mm-hmm. over the past roughly 50 years in particular. And I think that it's uh, it's very fair to say romance has had a diversity problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that the mainstream industry is becoming more open to embracing point of views outside of a straight cisgender white couple. And mm-hmm. I was thinking though about how you've been seeped in the history of this is it seems to me Mm -hmm. that at the time you know the flame of the flower came out 1972 women were you know white women like if we if we want to say that's generally the the point of view that was being portrayed or or spoken to Mm -hmm. were marginalized in society and it was really speaking to those emotions ar- around the the issues that where they felt marginalized and that is not to say that many other people at that time were not also marginalized but that was one of a popular media form of media where women were starting to kind of explore issues that were important to them and doing so in a way that was sort of subversive, but also kind of had to not too subversive because then they wouldn't be able to be published. Right, right. I've been thinking a lot kind of about how things have evolved and the mainstream industry is opening up more and can still do better, Mm -hmm. but there are efforts being made. And I think that there is a tendency to look back at earlier points in history of the genre and demonize or or I think maybe be 
overly critical of what was being written and the problematic elements. And like, I feel like there's a place for acknowledging that it's problematic, particularly Mm -hmm. from our view in, you know, 2019. But that that doesn't mean that it was not also very like subversive and ahead of its time at the time. So I think there's a couple of threads to pull on that. I think you can look back at the 1970s and look at things like the flame and the flower, which, you know, has themes of rape and kidnapping and all of these things as you can see it as a regressive or a progressive work, depending on how you, you know, sort of pull apart the themes. I think also one of the important things, and I've been digging into this a lot lately, is looking at some of the early critics of romance. So like Jermaine Greer and and some of these authors who were talking about romance as being destructive for women and, you know, sort of writing in the early days of the women's movement Mm -hmm. in the 70s and, and saying, you know, this is part of the problem. You're naive and brainwashed if you read these books. But if you, yeah, if you go back and look at them, you can certainly pull out feminist themes from a lot of your works, from the 70s and 80s especially. You know, one of the the mistakes that I think a lot of your early critics made was they focused only on Harlequin. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, in 1980, Vivian Stevens at Candlelight, at Dell Candlelight at that point, was publishing Entwined Destinies by Elsie Washington, which was the first category romance by a Black woman featuring Black main characters. And, you know, within that line, you know, she was asking her authors to write characters that had careers and jobs. And this was in 80 and 81, which was like the simultaneously the the largest growth in romance and the largest growth in romance criticism. Mm. So I think there, yeah, there's, there's sort of two ends of that, you know, or there's a book called Gaywick from 1980, which was written by an author named Vincent Verga. And it was a gay gothic romance. So these books existed. And I think what happens now is we kind of look back at the 70s and 80s as a dark age, when in reality, there were black authors writing, there were gay authors writing, even going back prior to the 70s. So I think it's this sort of tenuous thing where like, we can acknowledge that those were kind of the bad old days in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But there were authors trying to make their voice heard. It was just a matter of how successful they were at and how how many people actually bought the books. Right, like how much they were embraced by the mainstream industry or the mainstream audience. Right, yeah. Right, people have been writing, you know, own voices stories for a long time, but for obvious right. reasons, I think, struggled to have them broadly distributed. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what's super interesting about digital publishing, yes. where so many barriers to entry have been removed and mm-hmm. I think that has been part of the opening up. And I think then the, the readers were always there, but I think there were gatekeepers that were saying, nobody's interested in this. And right. the audience was there. And now authors can go directly to the audience. There's with social media and the internet more generally, I think that that's just really enabled a lot of that. That doesn't mean that it's always easy to find people, but sure, <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. Right, absolutely. And a lot of the early days, it was... You know, there were publishers trying, like Gaywick was published by Avon. Mm-hmm. Dell was publishing Vivian Stevens, sort of what they, and, and I cringe when I use this term, but was Dell was publishing these ethnic romances. Right, yeah. They were trying to sort of hit a lot of different groups. So they were trying to publish Latinx books and Native American and Asian and 
and black authors with varying levels of success. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Vivian Stevens moves to Harlequin and that project just sort of falls down a hole and, and disappears. Yeah. So there were, yeah, it, and it comes down to sort of how publishers viewed reader response, whether readers were actually enjoying it or not. If there weren't enough of them, mm -hmm. then the publishers just made a business decision instead of a, a diversity decision. Thinking again about this idea of if you think about romance as starting as a literature of marginalized voices and mm -hmm. maybe not representative of all marginalized voices, but at least, you know, a particular point of view mm -hmm. that was marginalized. I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion around the phrase that we hear often about romance is a genre written by and for women. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, rightly so, are saying that that's very limiting. Mm -hmm. And one thing I want to talk about in the context of the Bromance Book Club, which we will be discussing in more detail a little bit later, is that it is discussing very openly cisgender white men, straight cisgender white men reading romance. Right. And I really, you know, want to explore in our conversation, I think that there is a lot of evidence that white men are also victims of the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody would say that um, straight white men are marginalized voices. <laughs> right. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's a very interesting perspective to, to also think about romance novels. They are for everyone, mm -hmm. but also if it is a literature for really focused on marginalized voices, then where does that leave the like least marginalized population right. and their relationship to romance? Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, speaking from my own experience, I think romance allows you know, a straight, cisgendered, middle-aged white guy like me to be kind of a spectator isn't the right word. The books are not written for me. Mm -hmm. They are not written largely. They're not written by me, for me at all. And so I think it's a really fascinating chance for those of us in sort of a majority group to to sit back and just listen and and read these books and absorb these stories. And there's a real value to it. And I think that's for someone like me, especially, you know, the, the real value of romance is being able to hear voices that I wouldn't have heard otherwise. The Brown Pop Culture Library is doing a conference researching the romance in April 2020. Yeah, so we're, this is our, our second go at it this time. We did one in 2018 and it was a huge success and by the end of the conference, everyone was asking me when I was going to do the next one. And I was really tired. So we took a year off. Now we are getting ready to do it again. It's going to be April 22nd and 23rd uh, in Bowling Green at the university. And it's open to everybody. We'll, we'll have registration available soon. And then our special guest for the conference is actually going to be Alyssa Cole. I'm very excited. About that. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. You ready to dive into the book? Let's give it a shot. That sounds very much like, I don't know how this will go. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Let's go. <laughs> yep. That's every episode, Steve. The Bromance Book Club. This book just came out. In fact, I had to ask for an advanced copy and you also got an advanced copy so that we could read yes. this because I think it just came out the first week of November. November 5th. 
Yes. So very new book. Lissa K. Adams is the author and she's a former journalist who has written contemporary romance. And a lot of the books that she's written have sort of a sports theme or or take place mm-hmm. in with professional athletes. And this book, the Bromance Book Club, is the first in a series. So recently they've announced some of the follow-up books that exist in the same the same world. And I believe it's it's like a fictional baseball team in Nashville. Is it a real baseball team? I don't know baseball. It's a fictional baseball team, but it's also, there's a member of the local football team. Oh. There's businessmen. There's a lot of, it brings together a lot of different groups into the, the book club. So it's not a... Not a homogenous group, necessarily. They're, they're from all different walks of life. Okay. The summary of the book is that it's a marriage and trouble romance. The couple, Thea and Gavin, have been married for something like three and a half years. They got married fairly quickly because Thea got pregnant. And it was right around the time where he was becoming a pro athlete and So things happen very quickly that he's been traveling a lot and he's a baseball player and she was going to art school Mm -hmm. and quit to have her have her daughters. She had twin daughters and has kind of been holding down the fort while he has advanced his career. And she feels that she has really forsaken her true self and been subsumed into his career, the breaking point comes when she has a real orgasm with him, which makes it clear that she has been faking her orgasms for the entire their entire relationship up until this point. And this becomes the catalyst for a crisis in their relationship. And it basically becomes clear that they have never really known each other that well. Mm-hmm and have a lot of issues that are unresolved. This brings us to the Bromance Book Club. Gavin is kind of taken into the fold of all of these guys that you you mentioned. Some of them are athletes. Some of them are businessmen mm-hmm. in the area. They have a book club of men where they read romance novels and use them sort of as manuals to enhance their relationships. Right, yeah. And the, the person who drags him in is Dell, who is one of his teammates. So the, this group seems to have organically formed and everyone kind of seems to bring in someone from their outside friend group into the book. Yeah, and I'm really curious if at some point the there's going to be like an origin story for how this formed because it's alluded to that Dell seems to be the ringleader and started it and as a way to save his own relationship. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting to, to dig into that. Yeah. So Gavin is a bit of a, you know, I didn't really read him so much as an alpha male, but he definitely is not in touch with his feelings. <laughs> right. And and I think in Gavin's case, it's useful to go back to Sarah McLean's definition of the alpha male, which is a successful male who's the best at what he does. Mm, yes. And he's also kind of an emotional idiot. <laughs> yeah. So Gavin was the hero of Game 6 of the World Series in the book, but they also lost Game 7 of the World Series and lost the the entire thing because of that. So Gavin is kind of, he's a really good, he's a second baseman, um, which is weird because second baseman usually never (laughs) saves. But So he becomes the hero of the World Series, but in a losing cause, and that makes him kind of a, a 
popular figure in Nashville. He also has a stutter. So it's an interesting contrast where in one realm, he is the master. Mm -hmm. And in other ways, he is very self-conscious and his self-esteem is not as strong as you think it would be mm-hmm. given kind of like his physical prowess and like he's very attractive he's you know described as being like i mean basically a figure of lust for you know the female population the straight female population in the area right. like there's pinterest boards dedicated right. to how hot <laughs> he is so yeah. he's an interesting contrast where i think there's a lot of like bravado mm-hmm. that he's he's kind of putting up to the world that is covering you know his soft belly and uh and so thea is we find out over the course of the book that she has a lot of family history that is informing how she enters this relationship and kind of her ability to open up and really be honest about her feelings Mm -hmm. and her needs throughout the course of the book it's interesting to watch how that family dynamic um, with her sister and her mother and father and her her grandmother who's long gone, but her advice lives on through the book, how that kind of shapes the way in which she approaches her relationship with Gavin in both sort of good and bad ways. The main book that the Bromance Book Club has Gavin read is, I can never rem- remember the name of it because I think they call it multiple things throughout the course of the book because there's there's various riffs on it. It's something about like an earl or a countess and... So I actually wrote this down because I couldn't remember it either. Um, It's called Courting the Countess is the name of the book within the book. Yes. And it's a Regency romance. And as you said, it's a book within the book. And um, you were discussing before we started recording how it follows very closely the beats of the evolution of the romance between Thea and Gavin, or I guess like the evolution of their their romance. Right. So I think what I found really interesting was both the main story of the book and Courting the Countess come from the same place where the the female character, Thea in the main book and Irina in Courting the Countess, are both kind of they're both devalued in society's eyes. In the case of Thea, it's because she got pregnant by Gavin right before he became a professional she kind of gets looked at as this gold digger type figure. And then Irina, I don't think we're told exactly how, but she gets ruined by the Earl of Latford or Earl Tight Pants, I think he's called in the book. <laughs> and so, you know, in both cases, they're sort of forced into marriage. And the whole theme of Gavin saving his marriage mirrors the Earl of Latford, Benedict, trying to court the woman he has already married. So it, it becomes this kind of dual courtship story. Right. So both of them in the story within the story and the story, they are already married and yet they don't really know each other that well and they have to get to know each other and understand each other's motivations. And I really enjoyed the scene in Courting the Countess where the Earl comes to realize that he's basically seen himself as a prize Mm -hmm. and it's hard for him to understand why she views it as a tragedy that she has wound up married to him. Mm-hmm. And he basically understands, he understands her position in it where it's a loss of freedom and a loss of her own identity. And that also is mirrored in with Gavin where I don't think he is doing this consciously, but I think there's definitely an element of like, we've got it made 
I'm a professional athlete, you know, we have no money concerns, and kind of forgets that his wife has her own identity outside of his, mm-hmm. and that she has basically subsumed her identity to his. And And I think that it's clear in the book that it's clear to me that he never necessarily asked her to do that. There may have been sort of a tacit understanding that she was going to mm-hmm. stay home with the girls. Obviously, she didn't need to work. And I think that Thea made these choices or allowed these things to happen mm-hmm. and kind of reaches a breaking point where she realizes that she has let go of so much of what she considered to be her identity and drifted so far that she kind of tries to do a very abrupt 180 to get back, but also at the same time hasn't been communicating these needs to her husband. And so it seems very abrupt to him. And I think it's pretty clear that Gavin had never really had to think about other people before this relationship. And so, you know, the moment he finds out she's pregnant, he proposes. You know, it's never, there's never a question of, would she have an abortion? Would they, you know, do something else in terms of their relationship? It's always, he feels like I have to be the the hero and charge in and marry this woman that I have, that I have ruined. Yeah. Without really considering her emotions. Right, exactly. And I I think he also, there's an element of glad that she's been trapped, maybe. I think because of that lack of self-esteem where he's almost a little bit glad that her hand is forced and she's going to be tied to him. You know, at one point he says, I've always felt like I'm the one who loves the other more in this relationship. That was honestly, that was heartbreaking. And both of the characters, neither of them are unsympathetic. I think the only thing that makes them unsympathetic is like their complete inability to communicate with each other for so long. (laughs) It's honestly so frustrating because... I think Thea, they they both, but Thea in particular is very unwilling to recognize that she has anything herself to work on right, for a right. large part of the book. Yeah, and I, Gavin doesn't seem to, he doesn't think that, it seems like they both agree that she doesn't have anything to work on, but they're both wrong. Yeah. Because Gavin just sort of goes on this wooing spree without considering her emotions, and she's not really thinking about her emotions either. You know, and some of that goes back, seems to go back to her family and the way her mother dealt with marriage and and the way her father was emotionally distant and all these things. It seems like she's conditioned to think that men are going to leave unless you leave them first. This, I think, leads us to one of the themes we wanted to talk about, which is what we give up of ourselves in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think that Thea is definitely demonstrating a lot of, like, protective behaviors where if she doesn't show her true self in the relationship, then when her partner eventually leaves her, she hasn't sacrificed too much of herself. And he's not necessarily even leaving her. She's just a person that people leave. And it seems like a why invest in this? Why be too vulnerable in this? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I think that she has kept herself at an arm's distance until this point where it's kind of forced on her. And then she panics and he panics and they both they sort of bounce off each other because they won't actually talk. Yeah. And in a marriage in trouble story, and I am by no means an expert on marriage in trouble as a trope because I have not read that many. Mm-hmm. It's not something I naturally gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. I might need to read more just to get a better foothold on it. 
But what is interesting, and and I know Keeney Allen talked about this on her episode, which was episode five. I think we were talking about in in terms of like second chance. But Mm -hmm. something that's interesting about Marriage in Trouble is this idea that we get to a traditional romance where the the couple meets at some time at the beginning of the novel or has never really had a significant relationship prior to the start of the novel. And you get to the happily ever after and they've really just begun. You know, the understanding is, well, they've resolved all the big issues and they're never going to have these big problems again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been married for eight years. I believe you are also married. I've been married for... Nine and a half years. Okay. So we have a little bit of a little bit of experience with marriage. Right. And and I think the conflicts that you have in courtship are very different from the conflicts that you kind of experience as you year on year on year are in your marriage because on the one hand you know each other so well. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, I think we all hope that we continue to evolve and learn and grow as people and so it's almost like this continual this path the relationship takes and then the individuals in the relationship kind of like diverge from the line and then meet again and diverge and and you know you kind of mm-hmm. hope that you kind of keep meeting in that common place. But I think that it is a constant sort of writing of the ship and making sure you're on the same path and are having those touch points because I think it is very easy, you know, you are two individuals. Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy to split off. And I think that what is happening in this book is that they never really ever came together. Right. They've always been parallel lines. They never really intersected except for one night in the back of a car. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, and I think also when you introduce children into it, even in the best relationship, your child sort of is like a reset button because you have to become completely different people all of a sudden where you're a parent now and you have to make sure the diapers get changed and someone gets fed and, you know, they get to school on time and all of those things. So yeah, it's, it's, it's like you were saying that sort of the point of the marriage and then the children and then, you know, the children get older and these sort of wavy lines that kind of take you together and apart within the relationship. The children element is is also interesting because at various points, the children are a, a nice plot device to kind of stop the conversation where they're maybe finally starting right. to get somewhere or using intimacy as a way of bridging some of their communication challenges. And I mean, I think that's like totally the thing with kids is, especially when they're young, you can't always like prioritize your relationship with your partner because there's also this other little human or other little humans that you also have a relationship with and they are also demanding. Yeah. And one of the scenes that I thought as a parent was was really informative was they refer to it as, I think, Pukagetan, where they have, so they have twins and both twins get sick. And they're both throwing up everywhere. This is at a point when Gavin and Thea aren't really talking to each other, but they're both in the house, so they're both trying to help. And it's clear that Gavin just has no idea what to do. He doesn't know where anything is. He doesn't know how to fix what the situation is. And it's really interesting because that's the point where Thea is kind of the rock star, and she knows what to do. She knows where the the towels are to clean things up. And it's a really interesting indication of how their their relationship has changed, where she has had to, because he's on the road 100 days a year with the baseball team, you know, he's never there. He hasn't really engaged with the kids other than as cool dad. Cool dad, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that, I thought, was a really interesting scene that maybe, you know, you kind of hope showed him something, but it, it's 
hard to tell in that moment. Yeah. No, exactly. I think that her emotional and domestic labor in this situation was not super well explored in this, but Mm -hmm. was definitely an element in why she, you know, she felt like she went from somebody who had goals, like she she wants to be an artist and she had to drop out of school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think being a being a parent and particularly being a mother, you it's very easy to sacrifice a lot of your identity to like being a super mom Mm -hmm. and it definitely like takes two to tango in that situation like she could have been more forthcoming about her needs he could have also been more self-aware about picking up you know more of those duties Mm -hmm. at least when he's home but yes there's a bit of you know just like the challenges of motherhood in this where she is a great mom and very invested in her children Mm -hmm. but sometimes to the neglecting her own needs right right yeah there's the giant calendar uh or whiteboard calendar or whatever that they talk about a number of times. He kind of looks at it as this mystical, magical thing, but it's the only way she can keep everything organized. Getting into the bromance book club, within the book, the actual book club, RWA says, according to a recent study or a recent survey, that 18% of romance readers are men. And I will be honest, that feels high to me mm-hmm. like i'm not saying i don't believe it but i'm just saying i'm very curious is this a lot of a huge hidden audience because i think that you know if you look on like romance twitter or romanstagram mm-hmm. where people are pretty visible or even you know goodreads and book review sites it seems like you would guess it's like 95 percent women right so i mean that's surprising to me and i would be super curious if there was any research being done currently or any academic work kind of exploring like what seems to be a hidden group. I mean, that's like one in five. Right. It's not insignificant. So I think part of that, I was a little surprised by that statistic as well, but I think part of that goes to the growth of YA romance and LGBT own voices romance. I think that has brought a lot more men into the fold of sort of reading some of these different stories. They may be reading stories, uh, you know, like myself, who don't connect to them, or they may not be cisgendered, heterosexual men mm-hmm. reading these books, but they're finding their own stories. So I think the sort of explosion in subgenre, where you can find more own voices, romance, has has maybe pushed that needle a little further than, than it has been in the past. Mm. It's always been a topic of conversation within the romance community of like, why don't more men read romance? And I think in terms of men like me, maybe that number is smaller, but I think there's a larger community beyond cishet straight white men that are that are getting into the into the genre. Yeah, I had the study open in my browser. So looking at sexual orientation, and by the way, the results are in a binary of female or male, there is no non binary option right. in this right. study. But for sexual orientation, they found 86% heterosexual or straight, 9% bisexual, pansexual or other bi plus identity, and 2% gay or lesbian. Mm-hmm. Every time I read statistics like this i'm like okay let's let's get in i want to talk to these people i want to know what's going on here you know and kind of understand right i want to see the raw numbers yeah yeah right (laughs) right because it is the 18 percent male like you know is a large percentage of that 18 percent non-straight right i will say you know i think that some of the straight men that i've encountered who read romance a lot of them are reading it 
because their wife or partner reads it. Mm. You know, I do think that happens quite a bit as well because, you know, there are people like, you know, my dad was the most voracious reader I've ever met. He would literally just suck up whatever was in, in his area. And so I know he read some romance at different points. You know, it was probably a single title. I don't think he ever got into Harlequin. Mm-hmm. I think there are men like that who, who will just sort of hoover up whatever book their wife is reading. And I think there are also probably a percentage of straight men who are just like, this sounds interesting, you know? Especially now where you're getting more books, like the Christina Lauren books, um, or this book, that are, they're not marketed to men, but they're in this weird liminal space of like the, you know, what they've been calling the romantic comedy, mm-hmm. where they're not described as a romance novel, per se. Yeah, and like more quote-unquote accessible. Right. Which in the end, I mean, they're romance novels. They're, you know, in, yeah. in most cases, there's no doubt about it as you're reading. Right. I think we can all assume that the reason that more men do not read romance, even if they hear a premise that sounds interesting, mm-hmm. you can assume that there are quite a few men that resist reading romance because of the negative feminized connotations of the genre and there's I think a lot of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. where I throw around toxic masculinity a lot and I was like I'm gonna look up the actual definition of this <laughs> because I was like I feel like I could not actually put a definition to this so I believe this is from Wikipedia adherence to traditional male gender roles that restrict the kinds of emotions allowable for boys and men to express including societal expectations that men seek to be dominant the alpha male and limit their emotional range primarily to expressions of anger Mm-hmm. And I think given that romance novels are an exploration of emotion, mm-hmm. I think this is definitely very threatening to somebody who is buying in to this idea that to be a man, you are not interested in emotions. Those are, that's a woman mm-hmm. thing. That's something you need to stay away from. And your masculinity will be questioned if somebody knew that you were reading a romance novel. Right. I think that that's something that Gavin struggles with a lot like I think I think he he definitely has some anxiety around being seen as not a manly man Mm -hmm. in in this book and that's definitely also tied into his struggles with expressing his emotions like he doesn't expect that he has to express emotions or or have emotions beyond I love you (laughs) as far as it goes and I think this is my maybe my one real criticism of the book is that we get a lot of Thea's family and and how she sort of ended up being the way she is but there's precious little of Gavin's family other than that they're like sort of like they're sort of supportive that's what little you see of them right. is that they're fantastic and like the dad gives him a good pep talk at some point but right yeah you know i feel like these things for men come through generations and so i kind of wish there had been a little more exploration of that because Gavin's not an emotional idiot because he chose to be. But that's how, you know, being a professional baseball player and all that entails in getting to that level. That's what that ingrains in you. And, you know, what that sort of family life would have been leading up to that, you know, where he was playing baseball nine months out of the year, the men that he was around before the bromance book. What was that? I think would have been a really interesting addition to the book. Although, you know, it's already a a pretty long book, so it didn't maybe need that, but I thought that would have been 
an interesting addition. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if that's something that will be explored in future books in in the series, too, because... Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. There's this really cute scene where some of the men with children, they're hanging out, they're having a book club, and the children, who I think were, are all girls, they do their nails, and they kind of dress them up, and then the children go off to, like, watch a movie or something. And all the guys in the book club are sitting around, you know, with their nails drying and just like talking about books. Right. And what's interesting is when the, actually now I'm trying to remember, when I think they're interrupted by Thea's sister Liv. Yes. And she comes in and they hide the romance novels, but do they hide the being dressed up? No, no, they... They hide the books in the closet. Yeah. And but they don't, yeah, they don't hide the fact that they're all, they're wearing boas and nails painted and all that. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting where they were, they're portrayed as being comfortable enough in their masculinity to not feel threatened by being seen with like nail polish on right. or, and, and a boa. Right. But then that's like, oh, we're dads or like we're hanging out with kids. I think that's you know, exactly that's fine. it. I think that you know, within expectations of masculinity, there's now, especially now, I feel like this has changed, where dads with their daughters are active participants in tea parties, or there's sort of that cliche of internet photographs of the dad tattoo sleeves or whatever, wearing a pink boa sitting at a tea party. Yeah. You know, I think that is societally acceptable. And, and it's interesting to think about, like, how did that come? How do we get to that? That was it. Yeah. Uh, because I can't imagine my dad doing that when I was a kid, but he definitely would have done it as a grandpa, right? Like, yes. you know, yeah. 30 years apart. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. The videos of my sister and I spending time with our dad are him trying to teach us how to play football. Right. And... <laughs> <laughs> but now we both, my daughter and my sister's first child was a daughter. Now, like, yeah, I feel like he's down on the floor playing with whatever they're playing with. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's different. It's a positive change. But it is interesting how in this book, the emotional fluency or being seen as reading a romance novel is a step too far. Right. You know, like, right. they haven't come that far yet. <laughs> Although yeah. they, the, the secrecy around it, it's like a fight club. Like, oh, you absolutely. know, the first rule of romance book club is you don't talk about it. And that fear is realized in Gavin and Thea's relationship where when she finds out, she sees it as a, a another sort of manipulation um, as opposed to a learning Tool. Yeah, I saw that. That was a really interesting scene, I thought, where, like, there's this moment where she's like, yeah, my Kindle is full of romance novels. And so there's that opportunity to connect. But then she's like, well, wait, was this just you trying to manipulate me? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, at that point, I was like, Thea, come on, girl. Mm -hmm. That was that was definitely like so deep into it. It was like, oh, this has to be the point where you st and, and it was it was, uh, I think, a bit of a final straw where yes, he's really trying and yeah. it becomes clear that she is not. Yeah. So speaking of all of the men's friendships, this is basically a book club where men are talking about their relationships mm -hmm. and their feelings and kind of digging deep into their own histories and how do we become like self-actualized, mature, emotionally fluent men. Right. And, and so, you know, definitely a huge theme is men's friendships. And there was an interesting discussion on Twitter 
where, you know, we had decided that we would share book recommendations for romance novels with men's friendships playing a big role in it. Mm -hmm. And um, Nathan Burgoyne, who is a queer author, suggested Vanessa North's Double Up. Right. And he said, it's a gay romance, so not sure if you're looking for that. I mean, a lot of own voice queer romance books have queer friend groups. Mm -hmm. I think we very broadly just said men's friendships. I think it's also an, another interesting topic to talk about queer friend groups. But I think what makes in heterosexual relationships, the male friendships different in a way is that I think a lot of the barriers to men forming friendships are rooted in homophobia. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Or yeah, it's, I don't know, I was thinking about this and I, I, I don't have a really good answer, but I think that's probably the closest. A lot of the ways in which men interact are through sort of, it's more about shared experience and whether it's a baseball team or whatever, there's not a lot of emotional digging that happens organically through those friendships. Mm -hmm. you know, unless there's something traumatic that happens to the whole group or, or something like that. Yeah, and I think that in heterosexual relationships, I think a big issue that a lot of men are grappling with is... And and I think this is one of the ways that the patriarchy hurts men, mm -hmm. you know, straight straight men in particular, is that there is this idea that a straight man can get all of his emotional needs met by a woman. Yes. You know, his relationship with his partner. Right. And that's really, you know, doing a disservice to men because I think it's well understood that women have friend groups, not just other women, but, you know, women are given more latitude to have intimate relationships with people outside of their marriage or their a romantic partnership. Right. And it's really hard to get all of your emotional needs met by one other person. Yeah, exactly. And so not that men are not friends with other men, but by not having that emotional connection with other men where they are sharing their experiences and helping each other out and helping each other kind of like explore ways they can get better in those areas mm -hmm. they are cutting themselves off from a really like rich source of fulfillment and i'm going to keep just using the term self-actualization right right it's a complicated issue because i think especially given that this takes place where a lot of the characters are professional athletes you know there's a lot of conversation about like locker room talk mm -hmm. like what is not in the books but like in society right. about like what is locker room talk and it's this sort of very surface level bro-y dehumanizing to women very one-upmanship of masculinity like i'm masculine no i'm the more masculine like i am the boss and also cutting down is usually a big part of that right so sort of you're making fun of your friend because he's wearing a pink shirt or you know things like that there's a lot of reinforcement of, of a lot of those uh, those norms Right. And then that's not a place that you can be vulnerable. Right. And sometimes you really need to be vulnerable to get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we will be giving book recommendations for other romance novels with fantastic male friendships in a little bit. So another theme in the Bromance Book Club is there's a lot of this like insidery romance discussion yes. i pulled this quote out there's a couple of points like this where it's like very much i mean not even like a wink like it's like breaking the fourth wall to the audience right um yeah. where they introduce the book and gavin says well it, you know it's a historical and he goes well that sounds relevant 
And Malcolm says, it is actually. Modern romance novelists use the patriarchal society of old British aristocracy to explore the gender-based limitations placed on women today in both the professional and personal spheres. That shit is <laughs> feminist as fuck. <laughs> that might be my favorite quote from the book. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm like, did he have that written down? I mean, that's... I don't know if I could come out with that canned of a response. Right. So I think there's... And this is just sort of me talking off the side of my head here. I think there's also the men, men like to be experts. So I'm sure there, there's a certain amount of like someone did some extra reading uh, outside the book club <laughs> and, you know, was either like on Twitter eavesdropping on Romance Landia or, or found something in a book somewhere <laughs> that led to the phrase feminist as fuck. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's it, it's a really interesting thing where the book club becomes kind of the stand in for romance fans everywhere. Yeah. And like the defenses of the genre. And it there's a recent TED talk, uh, Jessica Lynn Van Sluten, where she talks about romance novels being feminist. And there are many, many examples of speeches and articles and, you know, whatever that are publicly kind of defending the merits of romance and how mm -hmm. they are in fact a feminist literature and now is when i mention the paper that i wrote in 2006 about binary oppositions in romance and how romance novels are actually very feminist i wrote it when i was 19 and <laughs> it barely holds up i was rereading it and i was like i don't know if i agree with a lot of this andrea as soon as there are critics of romance, there are defenses of romance. Yes. But it's interesting hearing these defenses come from men, like this group of men mm -hmm. who are like using them as manuals for understanding their partners and relationships. They are kind of like, you know, just getting their feet under them and really trying to master the subject. Right, exactly. There, yeah, there's a, a desire to be, like I said, a desire to be the expert. On, on any given topic. Um, they're almost like mansplaining to themselves. <laughs> yes. In, in an interesting way. But I think also, you know, if I was not a romance reader, walking into that, as a reader of this book, I would be like, huh, what does that mean? And then, you know, it might sort of spur me to go look at some other stuff. So I think it's doing a couple of jobs there, where I think it's something that's really useful. It's funny to those of us who are kind of in the midst of it, but it's also people outside might be like, oh, all right, we'll prove it. Yeah, yeah. I think that this romance insideriness is actually one of the main reasons that I would call this a book worth reading. Mm -hmm. I think that this book does some very interesting things with discussing men's friendships, as we've discussed, and masculinity and emotional fluency. But I think that definitely the most unique aspect of this book is that breaking of the fourth wall. Yeah. And there were at times, I mean, I don't know if this is the most romantic book I've ever read. Mm -hmm. The most romantic romance I've ever read. Like, I don't know if their relationship quite got my, like, heartstrings stirring right. as much as other books. But it was very interesting. I guess I would just say very interesting. Yeah, I think so. And I think there are points where the book club is providing some comedic relief. Yeah. Like, there's a scene where... They're having Thanksgiving at Dell's house, and every man that walks in, Dell mentions that so and so is outside trying to fry a turkey, and <laughs> yeah. each guy takes off running to see what's going on because we've all seen those videos where the whole porch catches on fire, <laughs> you know, or the scene in the bar later in the book where like the two guys from the book club are spying on Gavin and Thea on a date, 
Gavin confronts the guys in the bathroom. <laughs> yes. It, you know, there's a lot of points where you're just like, this has nothing to do with the story, but I love it. Is the Russian hockey player, is it Vlad? Yeah, I think so. The smelly Russian. The smelly Russian guy. And I'm like, I don't think this guy's getting a book because I don't know if we can come back from this. I don't We'll have to see. I'm really, I'm curious. So I think um, <laughs> the next book is Mac, who's like the, I think he's a running back for the football team or something. And he's like the lady killer. Yes. And the heroine is Thea's sister, Liv, yes. who was, I was not a big fan of in this book. No, she's kind of a jerk in the book. Yeah. Which again, like, sometimes that happens where like the jerk in one book becomes the, the one you're rooting for in the next book. Yeah. Also, I mean, I'm going to mention Keeney Allen again. In the episode we recorded where we talked about Time Served by Juliana Keyes, that's another one where like the second book in the series, the heroine is somebody who you despise yes in the first book yeah and keeney said that she's redeemed and i think that i kind of always feel like i'm burned on a character when that happens mm -hmm. like you may redeem this person later right i don't even care <laughs> and the other example i always think of is alicia rye's forbidden hearts so in the first book hate to want you the character of jackson is kind of this uh it's her brother yeah right? he's like a specter in the background and by the end of the book, you're just like, I don't like him. I don't want to know more about him. And then he's the hero of the next book. And by the end, you're just like melted into his arms. So. <laughs> it is very interesting when that happens. And also, you know, the classic example of this is Sebastian St. Vincent from uh, the Wallflowers series by Lisa Kleypas, where mm -hmm. in the previous book to his book, he kidnaps and threatens sexual assault on the heroine and you're like how are you coming back from this and yet he is a lot of people's favorite claypus hero so you know it's yeah. it's always he's not my favorite but <laughs> i have not gotten to that book yet oh so I, i'll have to yeah i feel it's it's earned its place in canon right so <laughs> you gotta read it <laughs> let's rank this book on angst heat and humor so this is a five-point scale. Mm -hmm. It's not a good or bad thing. It's just a, like what you can expect from this book. So what would you give the Bromance Book Club on a one-to-five scale for angst? So I think this is tough because I think both main characters have a lot of angst, but it's not necessarily directed at each other, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. You know, I think Thea has a lot going on with her family, and there's a scene at the end where... She finally goes to confront her father, who's in his fourth marriage or, or whatever. So I think she has a lot to deal with with that. And he's dealing with being a baseball player and having a stutter and, and some of those things. You know, he definitely longs for her, but I'm not sure that there's angst between them. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of, I gave that a three. So I think right in the middle. All right, yeah. Nice, nice middle of the road. Yeah. Not devoid of angst. But... Right, right. And then for Heat... I also gave it a three because the scenes where they finally do come together, I thought were really good and quite warm, but it takes a really long time to get to that point. And I was like, okay, we can maybe get to this a little sooner or something. I'm not sure. So I kind of put that right in the middle. Humor, I would give a 4.5. 4.5. Yeah. All right. So not the funniest book I've ever read, but there was a lot of points where I was chuckling. It is very much a roller coaster of a book. You know, there are times when... You're nearly in tears and times where you're laughing and times where you're shaking your fist at one of the characters. So it's 
It's a real roller coaster. <laughs> a roller coaster of emotions. Exactly. I had a lot of fist shaking, I'll be honest. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's just like, just talk to each other. <laughs> I know. I know. And I really am trying to examine where I think sometimes I feel I'm being harder on the heroines than the heroes. Mm-hmm. And I'm really trying to be self-critical about that and being like, all right, how much of my internalized misogyny is at play here mm-hmm. in being harder on them for their issues? But uh, Thea was pretty frustrating and yeah. so was Liv. I don't think it was un explained why they were the way they were right so you know i'll buy it and that maybe makes it more frustrating i would think you kind of understand where they're coming from and this goes back to my point about wanting to know more about gavin's family yeah because he he kind of gets a pass a little bit right you know like he's expected to fix his behavior but there's not you don't get to the roots of it like you do right yeah it's almost like his problems are society's making and hers are her specific family situation. Something like that, yeah. We are here at Trope Town, and we are going to give book recommendations for male friendships in romance. All right. Last week, I was in India, and I was, like, you know, posting on social media about how I was on Instagram, and I hadn't really, like, closed the loop with you on what we were going to discuss on the themes of this episode. And so I was at the Hyderabad India airport, like about to board my first flight for that was like a four hour flight. And then I had like a 14 hour flight after that. And I had very spotty internet while I was over there. Mm -hmm. So I like was emailing you and we had just decided that we were going to do men's friendships for the book recommendations. And, you know, then I like power down my phone and get on the plane and like try to get some sleep. And then I get off the plane in Dubai and my Twitter mentions were like exploding. <laughs> <laughs> because you because you had put it out on social media and like I had like put something out on Instagram, I think, and you put it out on Twitter and like there were a profusion. Oh my of, goodness. You got a bunch of recommendations. There's so many. <laughs> there was it was kind of baffling how, how long that list was. And most of them are books that I haven't read yet, which is an interesting sort of commentary on how vast romance can be. Yeah. You know, the, there are literally thousands of books coming out every year that you're never going to get. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So I obviously don't expect you to pull out every single one that was recommended, but what have you got for us for romance novels with male friendships? There were two series that that I've read that sort of instantly came to mind. The first was the Brother Sinister series by Courtney Milan, which is about three men who were, I believe they were friends at prep school, you know, sort of their relationships with women. This was kind of the series that really hooked me into romance to begin with. You know, one of the things I've discovered about how how I read romance is I'm looking for characters to identify with. And at that point, I was really looking for male characters to identify with. So you do read the occasional book where the men are not kind of fully formed human beings. But Courtney really writes very well about men. I happen to also be left-handed, so I really was, it was like another layer of identification. Uh, with Brothers Sinister. And then the other series was The Rules of Scoundrels, like Sarah McLean, which is three men and one woman, woman who run a gambling hell together. And kind of their friendship plays into how they approach their relationships with women or men, you know, in the case of, 
of the last book. So those were the, the two that I've actually read <laughs> that really stuck out to me. You know, we mentioned Vanessa North, Double Up, earlier. The third book in that series is Roller Girl, which I really loved. And that also has, you know, that, that sort of, it has friend groups of, of gay men and gay women coming together and sort of interacting and bouncing off each other. And, and I really enjoyed that one as well. So this was, I have read the Julie James FBI series, mm. but had to be reminded about the male friendships in that one by Readaholic19 and Jess, who is Rom10 Key on Twitter. Mm-hmm. The FBI series, there's a lot of interconnected relationships, like friend and romantic relationships between the FBI agents and FBI administrators and the attorney generals, you know, that they work with. There's a lot of great male friendships in there where they definitely transcend the just like work relationship and mm-hmm. get into like kind of emotional support and all of that. And and that and you see that kind of evolve over the many books in her series. So I have read a lot of those and really enjoy them. And then Kat Jackson, who is going to be an upcoming guest on the podcast, and we're actually, as I mentioned earlier, going to read An Unconditional Freedom by Alyssa Cole, so watch out for that one. She suggested three books, or three books and or series. So Rebecca Weatherspoon's Rafe. Mm -hmm. So also speaking of Rebecca Weatherspoon, I will be reading Sanctuary with a guest on an upcoming episode. I'm like looking at my schedule. <laughs> like I have to be reminded. So anyways, I've really been meaning to read Rafe and I think I've already said this on a previous episode. I really want to read it. So I'm excited to read that one. So she said that there's a diverse group of guy friends for the male main character in Rafe. Um, that's the the buff male nanny, mm-hmm. which has an amazing premise. And um, then she suggested Krista Tomlinson's Champions of Desire series that has a lot of guy friends. I think think she said they're queer professional wrestlers so that also i mean that's fascinating i'm very intrigued (laughs) i'm very intrigued and then she also suggested alexandra warren's a tale of two cities novellas that have black male friendships all of these ideas i think are worth exploring kind of in their own right Mm So we're at Write This Book. And so this is a segment where I don't make my author guests do this because I figure that they <laughs> they have to do this all the time anyways. They have to write a book anyways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But so for those of us who are not romance writers, this is where you get to pitch your idea for a book that you want somebody to write. You're not going to write it. You want somebody to go out there and write it. Or you want somebody to let you know if somebody has already written it so that you can go buy it. Absolutely. So yeah, I'm definitely not writing any of these books. But so I love curling, you know, the the sport on ice with the brooms and the rocks. And one of the things in the the last Winter Olympics, it was the first time they had introduced mixed doubles curling, which was teams of two instead of teams of four. And it's a man and a woman. And I want that romance. Either they can be competitors or teammates, or maybe they're competitors thrown together as teammates. There's a lot of friendship and bonding in curling, and there's a lot of yelling and screaming at each other in curling. So I feel like it's sort of the perfect jumping off point for a lot of different tropes. There is only one curling romance that I'm aware of, and that's Throwing Stones by Avery Coburn, which is, I think, a novella, actually, in the Glasgow Lads series. And so I, I want more curling. And, you know, there's Winter Olympics coming up soon. So, you know, it's perfect time to 
to jump on that cash machine that is growing. <laughs> yeah, that's trendy. You got to get with the zeitgeist. Absolutely. Somebody out there, you know, somebody like, uh, you know, if you're into sports or, I mean, or just very specifically curling. Yeah. And I will acknowledge I have never watched curling. Yeah. But your description of it sounds very fascinating. And it could definitely be a whole series because a curling club is, Ooh. you know, usually there's a bar. There are all-male teams, all-female teams. There are mixed-gender teams. There's this mixed doubles format. So there's a lot of potential. And now, question about curling. Mm -hmm. I understand that a lot of reasons that sports teams tend to be gendered is because there is uh, a real or imagined perception that if it's a sport that involves strength, that you would want to even the playing field with men playing against other men versus right. you know women because they would just be on very different levels mm -hmm. is curling what is like kind of the physical skill set of curling how like strength based is it and and i'm not at all saying women cannot be very strong right so i think that within curling the any gender divides are more historical than ability based you need to be able to move a broom really fast um, which men and women can do you need to be able to push a stone with a great deal of accuracy, which both men and women can do. Um, and you need to be able to yell, which both men and women can do. You know, curling goes back hundreds of years to Scotland, and it began as a sport played by farmers during the winter on their frozen up lakes. So there sort of was this historical thing of only men curl. And then in the 20th century in Canada, you start to see women start curling, and then you had there's a version of doubles that is two men and two women was sort of the rage for a long time. And then this even newer version of mixed doubles of one man and one woman came along in the last 10 years. I think. But any sort of gender divide within the sport is, is strictly on a historical basis. There's really no athletic ability separation between the two. You know, I've definitely, I've curled with women much better than I have. <laughs> And so I meant to ask you this earlier. Mm -hmm. What's your catnip? What's your romance catnip? Like the trope that you enjoy above all others? And, and would you integrate that specifically into your write this book? Oh, okay. You know, I think, as I mentioned before, I'm a huge fan of Melissa Cole. And the thing that I really like about her books is that in addition to the relationship, there's always something else going on. So there's a point at which the two main characters have to come together and sort of unite against the world. And they're facing slavery or, you know, the, the House of Lords or, or whatever else is going on. And I really love that. So I like a romance where the characters, you know, maybe there's some angst, but they come together and then they sort of turn their bodies towards the world and they conquer it as, you know, as a pair. That's really, those are the books that I really, really Oh, that's interesting. Maybe they have to go against the governing curling body and uh, challenge the establishment somehow. <laughs> Thanks for listening to episode 13 of Shelf Love, a romance novel book club. Thank you so much to Steve Amidown for joining me on this episode. You can learn more about BGSU's Brown Popular Culture Library by visiting their website or following them on social media. I will have links in the show notes. You can also follow Steve on Twitter at Stegan. You can find me on social media at Shelf Love Podcast on Instagram and at Shelf Love Pod on Twitter. 
You can always reach me directly at Andrea at shelflovepodcast.com. And if you'd like to get occasional updates, you can sign up for my email list, which you can do on my website, shelflovepodcast.com. Here is what is coming up on future episodes. Next up, Fumi from When Fumi Met Romance and I get into therapy, healing, and growth when we discuss Equivalent Exchange, a super hot contemporary by Christina C. Jones with a workplace romance at a brewery. I will be reposting one of my earlier episodes on Tuesday, December 24th, and then on December 31st, which is the best day of the year because it's my birthday, I will be releasing the 2019 Superlatives episode. More on that in a second. After that, Norma Perez-Hernandez and I get tropetastic as we discuss recovery, sweet dogs, and moving upstate after reading Sanctuary by Rebecca Weatherspoon. This book somehow manages to do the there's only one bed trope in a four-bedroom house. So, here is the scoop on the Superlatives episode. On this episode, I will be sharing listener-suggested, highly specific categories, especially made for the romance novel that you enjoyed reading this year. And I will be joined by librarian extraordinaire B and her books. B is a recommendation machine, so she's an ideal partner for this episode. There's going to be a lot of book recs as we wrap up a year of listener reading. Best of lists have their place, but this podcast is all about the books worth reading. And at a certain point, that becomes very subjective. It's impossible for one person to read every book that's come out. Also, I've said before that I hardly ever read the newest books that have come out, so I really want to celebrate what you read in 2019, whenever it was published. Who cares? If you read it in 2019, it's fair game. Here's how this works. Basically, you think of a romance novel that you really enjoyed this year. Then you think about a superlatives category that could really only apply to that book. Here's an example. This was shared by listener Jessica. Noblemen with submissive tendencies entering into a marriage of convenience with a spunky botanist. Can you guess the book? If you're intrigued but don't know the novel, you'll have to listen to the episode to find out. If you'd like to suggest a category and book pairing for the superlatives of 2019 episode, you can drop me a line on social media or email me at andrea at shelflovepodcast.com. You can also contribute an audio recording for potential inclusion in this episode. What you do is you send an MP3 file that is no longer than three minutes to my email address. Make sure that you share your name or what you'd like to be called, what your superlative is, and the book that you are recommending. You can also share a few words about why you love it so much or who else might love it. Again, my email is andrea at shelflovepodcast.com. I'm really looking forward to hearing your favorites from 2019 and sharing them with everybody else. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you're subscribed so you always get new episodes. A fantastic birthday present would be to also give me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Shelf Love is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts.